I am James Hong, and welcome to the Surpassing Value Podcast. The fuel and desire for this podcast was born out of a compulsion to flesh out what's been going on in the midst of an ocean of megaphones that may not actually withstand the test of scrutiny. As a signpost theologian, I will do my best to filter out the impurities and point people in the right direction. For this episode, I wanted to focus much of the time to talk about Margaret Sanger, while at the end comparing her to Mildred Jefferson. Before I begin this episode, I want to state, as is true for every episode that I've ever produced, my goal is to not attack people per se. I'm not trying to attack people. I am trying to point out ideas and movements. But as you know, Ideas are connected with people. So if we're going to have an intellectual, dispassionate conversation, we need to be frank, candid, and direct while not giving sway to unbridled emotion. Logic must prevail. To the extent that it matters to any of the listeners, I've had and continue to have close people who've had abortions much, much closer to me than you might even know. I do not hate people who've had abortions because if I did, then that would mean I would hate some of the people closest to me. At the same time, I will not sacrifice truth and I will not circumvent talking about topics that need to be talked about because that would be inherently unloving. With that disclaimer, on to the episode. To start off, Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood, the same Planned Parenthood that has locations all across the country and performs the majority of the abortions in the United States, the same Planned Parenthood that has strategically placed about 88% of their locations in urban areas. Margaret Sanger was born in New York in 1879 and was embedded within socialist politics from early adulthood. By 1911, she was writing for a socialist magazine called New York Call. In a series for that magazine entitled What Every Girl Should Know, she wrote two essays on the subject of sexual impulse. In one of her essays, her evolutionary viewpoints for humankind and the hierarchy of the superiority of races was clearly on display. If you recall in episode three, On Darwinian Evolution and Scientifically Validated Racism, Episode 3, On Darwinian Evolution and Scientifically Validated Racism, I went over the origins of evolution and and how it perpetrated and gave so-called intellectual cover for racism. For a clearer context, I'll go ahead and refer you to that episode. My point is... In this quote I'm about to read to you, you see Margaret Sanger's worldview on clear display. This is again Margaret Sanger in an essay on sexual impulse. Quote, When man has emerged from the jungle and stood upright on his hind legs, the shape of his head and his face change from the long jaw and flat head of the animal to the flat face and high head of the man. 
All progress from that time forward was made along mental lines. According to the universal law then in existence, he should have been limited to a geographical area and killed by the extreme heat or cold or starved for one kind of food if it were not obtained. But against all these he fought because he became endowed with such attributes as reason, knowledge, and willpower. Instead of using his creative powers solely in hunting food and reproducing a species, he used this force in making plans for his self-preservation. He built rafts and boats to cross rivers and streams. He devised methods of clothing himself against extreme heat and cold and discovered various ways of preparing food for different climates suitable for his various needs. In other words, he conserved his creative force and redirected it into channels which have resulted in giving him precedence over all other living creatures. For man has developed a conscious mind which asserts itself by reasoning, which in turn has developed his brain power. It is said a fish as large as a man has a brain no longer than the kernel of an almond. In all fish and reptiles where there is no there is no great brain development, there is also no conscious sexual control. The lower down in the scale of human development we go, the, le the less sexual control we find. It is said that the aboriginal Australian, the lowest known species of the human family, just a step higher than the chimpanzee in brain development, has so little sexual control that police authority alone prevents him from obtaining sexual satisfaction on the streets. According to one writer, the rapist has just enough brain development to raise him above the animal, but like the animal, when in heat knows no law except nature which impels him to procreate whatever the result every normal man and woman has the power to control and direct his sexual impulse men and women who have it in control and constantly use their brain cells in thinking deeply are never sensual unquote from the quote i read to you you could clearly see the implication that she believed in a hierarchy and superiority of differing races much like Darwin espoused. After all, Darwin's magnum opus is called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. In 1914, Sanger launched a newsletter using the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. No Gods, No Masters. This slogan is interesting because it dated back to England in the 19th century used by anarchists and socialists, the origins of the English usage goes back to Louis-Auguste Blanqui, who was a French socialist and political activist. The French term was neither God nor master, neither God nor master. Unsurprisingly, this term was shared by Friedrich Nietzsche in Beyond Good and Evil. Sometime afterwards, she founded the American Birth Control League and began to promote her organization by speaking for various groups, one of those groups being the KKK. In 1948, she started what would become today's Planned Parenthood. She died at the age of 86 in 1966 in Tucson, Arizona. For the next segment of this episode, I want to quote to you verbatim some articles written about Margaret Sanger that I did indeed fact check. I'm quoting these articles to you to give you and bring more color to who Margaret Sanger was. Arena Grossu, A-R-I-N-A Grossu, G-R-O-S-S-U, 
who is the director for the Center for Human Dignity at the Family Research Council, wrote the following in an article entitled, Margaret Sanger, Racist Eugenicist Extraordinaire. She wrote this on May 5th, 2014. Irina Grossu says, quote, Recent articles have reported on an unearthed video from 1947 of Margaret Sanger demanding no more babies for 10 years in developing countries. A couple of years ago, Margaret Sanger was named one of Time Magazine's 20 most influential Americans of all time. Given her enduring influence, it's worth considering what the women who founded Planned Parenthood contributed to the eugenics movement. Sanger shaped the eugenics movement in America and beyond in the 1930s and 1940s. Her views and those of her peers in the movement contributed to compulsory sterilization laws in 30 U.S. states that resulted in more than 60,000 sterilizations of vulnerable people, including people she considered feeble-minded idiots and morons. She even presented at a Ku Klux Klan rally in 1926 in Silver Lake, New Jersey. She recounted this event in her autobiography. I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I saw through the door dim figures parading with banners and illuminated crosses. I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak. In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. Margaret Sanger in Autobiography, page 366. That she generated that she generated enthusiasm among some of America's leading racists says something about the content and tone of her remarks. In a letter to Clarence Gable in 1939, Sanger wrote, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the, insert archaic word for black person here, population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. That was Margaret Sanger uh, in a letter to Gamble, December 10th, 1939. Her own words and television appearances leave no room for parsing. For example, she wrote many articles about eugenics in the journal she founded in 1917, the Birth Control Review. Her articles included some moral aspects of eugenics, the eugenic conscience, the purpose of eugenics, birth control and positive eugenics, and birth control, the true eugenics, to name a few. The following are some of her more telling quotes. While I personally believe in the sterilization of the feeble-minded, the insane, and syphilitic, I have not been able to discover that these measures are more than superficial deterrents when applied to the constantly growing stream of the unfit. They are excellent means of meeting a certain phase of the situation, but I believe in regard to these, as in regard to other eugenic means, that they do not go to the bottom of the matter. That is in Birth Control and Racial Betterment, February 1919, the Birth Control Review. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit. Stop our national habit of human waste. By all means, there should be no children when either mother or father suffers from such diseases as tuberculosis, gonorrhea, syphilis, cancer, epilepsy, insanity, drunkenness, and mental disorders. In the case of the mother, heart disease, kidney trouble, and pelvic deformities are also a serious bar to childbearing. No more children should be born when the parents, though healthy themselves, find that their children are physically or mentally 
defective. The main objects of the Population con- Congress will be to apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring to give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. In a 1957 interview with Mike Wallace, Singer revealed, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being practically. Delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just marked when they're born. That to me is the greatest sin that people can, can commit. This line of thinking from its founder has left lasting remarks on the legacy of Planned Parenthood. For example, 79% of Planned Parenthood's surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of black or Hispanic communities. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's abortion surveillance report revealed that between 2007 and 2010, nearly 36% of all abortions in the United States were performed on black children, even though black Americans make up only 13% of our population. A further 21% of abortions were performed on Hispanics and 7% more on other minority groups for a total of 64% of U.S. abortions tragically performed on minority groups. Margaret Sanger would have been proud of the effects of her legacy, unquote. There's a database online of most, if not all, of Margaret Sanger's works. I read through a good chunk of her, of her material, but if you want to fact check the material, feel free to go ahead and do it yourself. So what does Planned Parenthood have to say about its founder today, given the state of the culture? After all, what I read to you is should be considered, if there were consistency, extremely offensive. So what does Planned Parenthood have to say about its founder today, given the state of the culture? K. Cole James, K. Cole James, president and founder of the Gloucester Institute and also current president of the Heritage Foundation, to the extent that it matters to you, K. Cole James is a black female. She wrote an article this year for the Heritage Foundation on June 29th entitled, Even with removing Margaret Sanger's name, Planned Parenthood is still influenced by a racist founder. This is June 29th of 2020 for the Heritage Foundation. K. Cole James writes, quote, one of Planned Parenthood's largest abortion facilities, one of Planned Parenthood's largest abortion affiliates has finally disavowed Planned Parenthood's founder for her racist legacy and her connections to the eugenics movement. However, this symbolic bowing to the far left's cancel culture doesn't change the fact that the organization is still influenced by her inhumane beliefs. Planned Parenthood of Greater New York PPGNY is finally removing Margaret Sanger's name from its Manhattan clinic after decades of choosing to overlook the organization's white supremacist roots. Sanger said all sorts of disturbing things like, we don't want the word to get out that we want to exterminate the, insert archaic word for black person here, population. She favored the forced sterilization of those she deemed unfit. 
She gave a speech to the Ku Klux Klan, and she once wrote, the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Mind you, like Virginia Governor Northam, she was talking about a child who had already been born. PPGNY's national organization, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, has long said that many of Sanger's racist quotes have been taken out of context. While the national organization acknowledges some of Sanger's many flaws, it says her story is complicated and it hasn't totally disavowed her. It still labels her a woman of heroic accomplishments and it still calls its highest honor the Margaret Sanger Award. However, in its news release, PPGNY parted ways with the standard talking points, acknowledging what it called Planned Parenthood's contribution to historical reproductive harm while communities within communities of color. Yet for years, Planned Parenthood has had the audacity to claim that it believes black lives matter. As we know all too well, the cancel culture is one of the far left's frequently used tools to destroy anyone or anything that doesn't comport with its racial ideology. Never at a loss for hypocrisy, though, the left frequently attempts to nuance the troubling pasts of its heroes, trying to make them acceptable while at the same time tearing down statues of those who helped make America the exceptional nation it is. Some will accuse me of having a double standard when I say that it's okay to cancel Margaret Sanger while I defend statesmen like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Yet there's a significant difference. While we roundly condemn Washington's and Jefferson's participation in the evil of slavery, we can still celebrate their lifelong work to create a nation built on the highest ideals of humanity. On the other hand, Sanger's open racism, her promotion of eugenics, and her advocacy of forced sterilizations to keep those she deemed unfit from breeding was her vision. Planned Parenthood was formed on that vision, and much of that vision still exists at Planned Parenthood today. Planned Parenthood still considers certain people less than human and rejects the science of prenatal development by calling babies in the womb clumps of cells, tissue masses, and products of conception. Planned Parenthood also still targets minority communities. If Black Lives Matter to Planned Parenthood, then why, according to a 2015 study, are nearly 80% of its surgical abortion facilities located within walking distance of minority neighborhoods? According to the Guttmacher Institute in 2014, a year when black women only accounted for about 13% of the U.S. population, they made up 28% of those having abortions. Each year in New York City, more black babies are aborted than born. Pro-lifers have been pointing out Sanger's despicable views for decades, and Planned Parenthood didn't just find out about Sanger's past yesterday. So why is Planned Parenthood only now rejecting its founder? And why isn't the entire organization doing it? It strikes me how blatantly we see the double standard at work here. Sure, Sanger is getting canceled, but only at one of Planned Parenthood's facilities and in a relatively mild way. Planned Parenthood still talks about the good she allegedly did and is willing to ascribe her transgressions to being a woman of her time. How ironic that the left doesn't give America's founders the same courtesy. There's no allowance for context, no allowance for being men of their time. There is only cancellation and demands that everything they produced, for example, America, be destroyed. 
until Planned Parenthood stops dehumanizing living, growing children in the womb, until it ceases performing abortions, and until it stops locating facilities and advertising heavily in and around minority communities, it will continue carrying out Margaret Sanger's original vision. Canceling Margaret Sanger and the symbolic gesture of removing her name from a building won't change any of that, unquote. Let me be absolutely clear about something. I'm not detailing the life of Margaret Sanger because of republicanism. I'm not detailing the life of Margaret Sanger because of republicanism. In the last episode, I've already detailed to you when life begins. If life indeed does begin at conception, then the undeniable conclusion is that modern-day abortion could easily be equivocated with child sacrifice we see in the scriptures. That is empirically proven, but in case you think I'm taking it out of proportion, listen to what Governor Ralph Northam stated on the issue of infanticide. This is the same quote alluded to by K. Cole James in the article that I just quoted to you. Again, these are babies who survive abortion that are outside the womb. Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia states this in 2019, quote, If a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. So I think this was really over this was really blown out of proportion. Don't worry. If we miss on the first try, we'll certainly get them on the second, Dr. Manegli. Unquote. Let me say that last part again. This is Governor Ralph Northam talking about babies who are born from botched abortions outside the womb. Quote, don't worry. If we miss on the first try, we'll certainly get them on the second, Dr. Menegli, unquote. Indeed, as I'm producing this episode, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act still hasn't passed. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, that is the same bill that's been introduced by Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. That is a bill that aims to protect living human beings from botched abortions instead of murdering them when they are outside the womb. And this country has slid so far that this is now controversial. It is now too political to call out infanticide. However, we will not let culturally induced dialectics dictate what is merely political versus what is objectively right. And believe me, calling out infanticide, what I'm saying right now, calling it out is going to age very well. And just like we judge the generation that didn't fight to abolish slavery or Jim Crow laws, 
generations in the future will look back and judge us. What I'm telling you right now is going to age very well. In every way, this is just like the infanticide described in the scriptures, just transferred to fit contemporary society. Let me prove it to you by showing you what the scriptures say concerning this barbaric practice. Leviticus 18.21 says this, You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.10 There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. 2 Kings 21.6 He made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, and used divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. 2 Chronicles 33.6 He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Isaiah 57, 5. Who inflame yourselves among the oaks, under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines, under the clefts of the crags. Jeremiah 7, 31. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Jeremiah 32, 35. They build the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Psalm 106, 35-38 But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Perhaps some of you are listening to this and you're moved. This information is new to you. You're wondering what you could do to help. Let me tell you what we could all do, each and every one of us. And I want to say before I tell you what we could all do, I want to say, yes, perhaps some of us will be called to do something more radical in terms of visible occupations. That is possible. And yes, some will be led to do more substantive work like Maybe a, a Samuel Say over at slowtowrite.com. If you don't know Samuel Say, he is a blogger extraordinaire, a pro-life advocate. If you ever catch his story, he'll tell you about how he has saved in one summer 70 to 80 lives by just talking to people outside of abortion clinics. He's doing amazing work. Go check him out at slowtowrite.com. And so maybe some of you listening will be a future Samuel Say. And, and, and yes, maybe some of you will even be moved to budget away your 
vacations and, and give monetarily. But the real talk is not all of us are called to leave our occupations and do legislative work. And you shouldn't feel bad if that's not your calling. And we cannot all be involved in every worthy cause that exists. Let me say that again. We cannot all be involved in every worthy cause that exists. What I mean by that is a worthy cause is to fight human trafficking. A worthy cause is to fight the slaughter of civilians by Boko Haram. A worthy cause is to help the village Christians in India, the imprisonment of the entire country of North Korea, Iran, and so on. Those are worthy causes, but not all of us are called to devote our time to every single worthy cause. Even helping the, the, the disadvantaged nearby right here. I'm not saying we shouldn't care. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we need to heed our calling as individuals while also considering that we work as a body. So what is the one thing, one thing that all of us could do? That one thing is to speak truth in love. That is the one thing that we all can do and that we all should do. Speak truth in love right where you are. Just open your mouth and begin to speak truth in love. Pray for opportunities that you can speak truth in love. If you get shut down, you get shut down. If you've tried and they don't want to hear about it, we've all been there. But my point is to just open your mouth at some point. Because some point sometimes becomes no point for us if we say, I'll do it later. That could be with a group of your friends, your coworkers, or what, whatever other social connection you have. And yeah, you're going to get shut down 99% of the time. But you might also be surprised at how powerful speaking truth and love could be. I want to devote an episode one day to just kind of expand upon that. But you might be surprised at how powerful speaking truth and love could be and, and why we need to keep that the primacy in all things. The gospel works inside out. The gospel works inside out. And it does indeed have an effect when it is lived out and also spoken all societies are built one brick at a time and not from systems at a time bloom where you are planted since that is the one principle that is one of the principles given to us and that is in first corinthians 7 19 to 24 there is a reason why the great commission is the great commission there is a reason why the last thing Christ tells his disciples, tells the apostles, was Matthew 28. The gospel, and only the gospel, has the power to transform individuals and thereby entire societies. Suffice it to say, our Lord knew what he was doing and what he was saying. And perhaps if we were better biblicists, we would see it too.
To give you an example of the power of gospel transformation, I want to read to you an article by the same K. Cole James I quoted to you earlier and Jeannie Mancini, who is the president for March for Life. This article was also written for the Heritage Foundation. This was written on February 4th of 2020 and is entitled Remembering Pro-Life Trailblazer Mildred Jefferson. Remembering Pro-Life Trailblazer Mildred Jefferson. She was a deeply committed Christian. So imagine speaking truth and influencing what would be a Mildred Jefferson. K. Cole James and Jeannie Mancini writes, quote, as a nation prepares to celebrate the hundredth, as a nation prepares to celebrate the one hundredth anniversary of the Nineteenth Amendment, and looks back on the impact of women throughout the last century, we should remember one woman who broke out not just gender barriers but racial barriers and influenced the course of the nation, Mildred Jefferson. Dr. Jefferson was a bona fide pro-life icon, a brilliant black Harvard-educated surgeon. She helped found the nation's oldest and largest pro-life organization. Her eloquent pro-life arguments and her irrepressible passion also inspired some of the biggest voices in the nation to speak up for the unborn. In fact, in 1972, after seeing Jefferson on a national television interview, then-California Governor Ronald Reagan credited her with his pro-life conversion. He wrote to her, No other issue since I've been in office has caused me to do so much study and soul-searching. You made it irrefutably clear that an abortion is a taking of human life. I'm grateful to you. That, that letter would mark the beginning of a frequent correspondence between Jefferson and the governor. Reagan would go on to be one of the most unapologetically pro-life presidents in American history. Mildred Jefferson wasn't just brilliant. She was also a trailblazer for women. She earned her bachelor's degree in three years and was the first African-American woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School in 1951. She also became the first female surgeon at what was then the Boston University Medical Center. She was inspired to get involved in the pro-life movement when the American Medical Association decided it was ethical for physicians to perform abortions. It was a decision she strongly disagreed with and felt violated the Hippocratic Oath. In the 1970s, as a nation was debating liberalizing abortion laws, she helped found the National Right to Life Committee, the NRLC, and later served three times as its president. As president, she became one of the most visible spokespersons for the pro-life position in the nation. She was a sought-after speaker and would captivate audiences everywhere, even those that disagreed with her. As a woman and a surgeon, she had an enormous amount of credibility to talk about abortion. As she worked to change hearts and minds, she also knew that America needed to change its laws. In 1980, she was a driving force behind forming the NRLC PAC, one of the most successful political action committees in the country dedicated to helping elect pro-life candidates. The PAC has been instrumental in stopping numerous attempts to advance abortion laws and in passing laws to protect the unborn and their mothers. Like so many others, 
I, K. James, was one of those Dr. Jefferson and Dr. Jefferson inspired. I first saw her speak in the late 1970s when I was sitting in the audience as a mom with young children. Her talk left me awestruck and motivated me to become involved in the pro-life movement. She was gracious enough to serve as a mentor to me in my early days in the movement. I became the national spokesperson for the NRLC. I was inspired to start a crisis pregnancy center in my hometown, and to this day, I speak around the country in defense of the unborn. Today, as president of the Heritage Foundation, advocating for pro-life laws is one of the things that I'm most passionate about. While I, Jeannie Mancini, didn't have the blessing to know Dr. Jefferson personally, she is an inspiration to me. She swam upstream against the cultural current to fight for what is real, true, and good. Dr. Jefferson always saw the unborn person as a patient with equal dignity. She did, as I do, lead a major pro-life organization when the issue was contentious and being pro-life wasn't politically correct. As we celebrate the upcoming centennial of the 19th Amendment, I am reminded that Dr. Jefferson's entire life profoundly embodies our 2020 March for Life theme, Life Empowers, Pro-Life is Pro-Women. Mildred Jefferson helped the public see the cruelty and inhumanity of abortion and the inherent dignity of every human life. She inspired a president and countless lawmakers, pro-life leaders, and everyday Americans to fight to save the lives of innocent children in the womb. And at a time when the abortion proponents were winning in the courts, she was winning the hearts and minds of the American people. Though she died in 2010, her legacy, her inspiration, and her example live on. Mildred Jefferson's fight is a fight that all people must join until abortion is unthinkable and the law of this great land reflects the dignity of the unborn person. As she so profoundly said, the fight for the right to life is not the cause of a special few, but the cause of every man, woman, and child who cares not only about his or her own family, but the whole family of man. Unquote. That was K. Cole James, Jeannie Mancini, talking about Mildred Jefferson. What a stark contrast when you take a look at the lives of Margaret Sanger and Mildred Jefferson. Margaret Sanger, who was so determined to terminate and murder the lives a people that she deemed unfit. While Mildred Jefferson spent her life doing the exact opposite, fighting for those who are the most vulnerable in a time when it was politically incorrect to do so. Mildred Jefferson was, moti was motivated by her deep Christian faith. Thanks for making it to the end. I'll continue to try to make the journey worth it. To him be honor, glory, and eternal dominion. James Hong out.